It's the first Sunday night of the month, and this is the night we generally set aside for the answering of questions, which some of you have submitted, and uh, we do get questions almost on a weekly basis. I try to get people to write them down so that I'll be able to uh, understand exactly what you're saying. Sometimes people will mention things to me, and they say, you haven't dealt with it yet. That means I forgot. So, uh, but I encourage you to do that, and we'll try to address these. Uh, the questions tonight are those that have been submitted relatively recently. Uh, I felt like there were questions that deserve some answers because it was what was on people's minds regarding events that maybe have been discussed recently. Sometimes the things that are revealed puzzle us and cause us to ask questions. I think of the great event that occurred there on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Brother Ray read for us just a few moments ago. And after the Lord was transfigured and also Moses and Elijah, and God's voice thundered from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. And then Moses and Elijah were gone and they're coming down the mountain. And immediately what happens is the disciples are interested what does it mean when the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Obviously, they were referring to Old Testament uh, indications, particularly the book of Malachi. Jesus goes on to explain to them that he is going to come first. There's going to be a restoration of all these things, and obviously he's referring to the coming of John the Baptist. You know, when you read through the Bible, there's times that things just pop up at you and you say, I wonder what that means. And this caused the disciples to wonder, what about the coming of Elijah and John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that? There are passages in the Bible that cause a faithful child of God to want to know more. Uh, I find myself, as I do daily Bible reading, and I, I hesitate sometimes to pause and go look it up, but, you know, there's questions that come up in our mind and say, well, I wonder what happened here. I wonder what other events go along with it. Sometimes the solution is to consider the totality of Bible information. Sometimes the answer is there. You just have to go to another part of Scripture to find it. Sometimes it requires one consider deeply what is said in the passage. Uh, I suggest to you one of ours tonight can be answered by looking very carefully at what the text actually says. And then there sometimes we may not know the answer until the Lord chooses to reveal it. And what I mean by that is it may be judgment day before we know the answer. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, we learn that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What God wants us to know has been revealed, and it's in Scripture. And you and I can know that. We may have to look for it, but we can know that. But there are some things that God has chosen not to reveal. And about those, what you and I can do best is to say, I don't know. I hope to learn one day. Okay, question number one. I had probably seven or eight people ask me this question after a lesson. Uh, Brother Alan Gauger did a great job, and he made reference to what Jesus said to Mary. And he said to her, touch me not. And uh, several people asked me the question, why did Jesus tell Mary not to touch him? In John 20, verse 17, 
and told Thomas to touch him in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29, as well as Luke 24, verse 39? Well, that's a really good question. When you find these two, so let's read the passages and see if we can see an indication here. And I'm reading the New King James. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So touch me not. Chapter 17, verse, or chapter 20, verse 26 And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. Reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God... Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Behold, my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now, you obviously understand the distinction here. Why was Mary not permitted to touch him, and yet Thomas was along with others? Well, I believe there's several good, reasonable, plausible answers to this question. The first one can be found in the difference in the words that are used. And in the original language, there are difference in the original words. The word for touch or cling, as in the New King James translates it, and the word for handle are two different words. And they can carry with them two different ideas. For instance, the word to touch or to cling is holding on to a person and not letting them go. You know, you come up to somebody and you grab a hold of their arm and maybe you're going to shake their hand and we used to have a brother at the congregation I attend before. You go up and shake his hand, and then you're ready to go, and he just keeps holding on to your hand, and you're like, you pull your hand back, and he keeps holding on, and you're like, okay, I'm ready to go, and he keeps holding on, and you're like, okay, enough's enough. I shook your hand. Let's, let's go on. He'd do that every time. You got worried you just didn't want to shake his hand at all. But that's the idea here, the holding on to, not letting him go, and the question is, why would she do that? And I think there's more than one possibility, but one certain possibility is she is trying to worship him. And how do I know that? Matthew 28, verse 9 says, And as they went to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. You know, you grab a hold of him and you... You're not wanting to let him go. You're wanting to offer the adoration, the praise that is there. I'll give you another place where the word is used, which I think will also help explain that. First Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, when Paul is talking or answering a question about uh, women and about how they should react toward them, he said, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, 
it is good for a man not to touch a woman. If you took that literally, that means you shouldn't go up and tap a woman on the shoulder. Nor should you even shake her hand. Well, obviously, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about there is the intimate relationship between a man and a woman, the clinging to and the holding to uh, a woman. He said, that's not good. You don't need to do that. Well, the word handle is also a different word, but it's also in a different tense. The word for touch me not or do not cling to me is in the present tense, which is something that you keep on doing over and over. It's a, a repetitive action. But there's another tense that is called the aorist, which means you do something one time. And that's the tense that he uses here. Handle me. In other words, touch me right now. But the purpose for this touch is for verification. Thomas, when you come in, I want you to put your hand in these nail prints. I want you to put your hand in my side. Why do you do that? So that you can verify that it is I myself, Luke 24. Now, if you don't believe that that's the emphasis, then listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John makes reference to three of the five senses. He said we have heard him, we have seen him, and we've touched him. That's full verification. You know, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. That means that there were more than one of the senses and there was no doubt that Jesus was the Christ. Now, the significance, in my judgment, is why he ordered Mary to stop clinging to him. He says, don't cling to me, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But you see, when I compare this to the parallel in Matthew 28, I think I see she's got a job to do. There's a task being given to her. Listen carefully as you read Matthew 28, verses 7 and following. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly. And from the tomb with great with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. And when they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Do you see twice, verse 7, and then again in verse 10? That Jesus, as well as the angels say, you got to go to Galilee. Go tell them quickly. Mary has a job to do. And the job is not to stay there and to give him adoration, give him praise, even though that is a wonderful thing to do. But the thing that Mary has to do is to go tell the brethren. She's got a job to do. But then Jesus says, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go tell my brethren that I am going to ascend to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Okay, now I'm starting to see the ascension plays into this as well. 
from the time that Jesus rose from the dead until the time that he is going to ascend back into heaven is about 40 days. There's a lot of things that are going to have to take place during those period of time. And Jesus does not have time to dwell upon minor things at this point. There's things that have to take place. In John 16 and verse 7 we read, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. You see, there was a plan in mind. Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Jesus was going to appear to the various witnesses. He was going to ascend back to the Father. When he ascended back to the Father, he was going to send the Holy Spirit. And for the Holy Spirit to come, all of these events had to take place. Now let me give you a little bit of insight here. The day of Pentecost is 50 days later. If Jesus is going to do all he does in 40 days, then you've got to have everything ready to fall in place for the apostles to begin preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Question number two. Did God allow Naaman to worship Rimmon in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 18? I want to read verse 18 and listen to it carefully and then we'll discuss the background of it. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Now, for just a few minutes, I'd like to explain. You may already know the background very well, but for those who might not, Naaman is the captain of the Syrian host. He is a very valuable servant in the king of Syria's army. And Naaman is not only a mighty man of valor, but the text says he's also a leper. Leprosy is a dreaded disease. That If you get that disease, it's pretty much a, like a death sentence, but a slow, agonizing one. No longer would he be able to serve as the commander of the army. But one of the servant girls who was from Israel said, there's a man among the people of God who can heal him. And what the king of Syria does in the letter to the king of God's people and says, heal him. The king gets the letter and he said, well, I guess he's wanting war with me. No, 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 he's not wanting war. He's wanting his servant healed. And so he is carried to Elisha the prophet. Now, Elisha the prophet, when Naaman arrives for healing, uh, Naaman doesn't like the way the events transpire. Because here's what happens. Elisha sends Gehazi, his servant, out to meet Naaman. And he says, okay, here's what you do. You go dip yourself seven times in the river Jordan and your flesh will be clean." The response is recorded in verses 9 through 12. Then Naaman went with his horses and his chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent his message to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away in a rage and or went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out and 
to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy? Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers or waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Oh, you see the picture of what's going on. Naaman is angry. He feels like he's been snubbed by Elisha because Elisha didn't come out. He also looks at the Jordan River and he looks, and if he's like the rest of us, you look at it and say, that's a dirty old river. And he would look back and see Abana and Farpar, the beautiful rivers of Damascus, and say, I, I think I could be able to go there better. Of course, his servant reminds him, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? But now if he just tells you to do this, at least try it. And so you know what Naaman does? He does what Elisha instructs. His flesh is restored. And then Naaman changes his attitude. I mean, changes it remarkably. And so when he gets back from this, he not only now believes that God is the true God, but he wants to worship him back in Damascus. Notice what is said in verse 17. Then Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Now that's an important verse. He said, what I want to do, I want to carry earth back with me. I want to carry dirt back with me to Damascus. I want to build an altar there. I want to worship God and God alone. Well, that's a significant point to be made. But you see what happens here in verse 18. He asks for pardon for going into the temple of Remen and bowing. But if you'll read it carefully... It does not say that he worshipped. It says that his master worshipped. I want you to look at it again. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Remen to worship there. He didn't say when we go. He said when my master does. And he leans on my hand. And I bow down in the temple of Remen. When I bow down in the temple of Remen, may the Lord pardon me or pardon your servant in this thing. What he's doing is he's fulfilling a task. I'd like for you to compare this to a, a woman who's a secretary for a Muslim who, for instance, might have to enter a mosque to inform her boss of something. Do you know that you can go into a mosque as a non-Muslim? But if you do go in, there's a couple of restrictions. Number one, you've got to take your shoes off. Number two, you can't have any of your skin below your waist showing. If you go to a mosque in any of the Muslim countries today and you're like some of our people and you're wearing shorts, do you know what they'll do? They'll give you a wraparound to put around you. One of our young men on one of the trips was wearing shorts. They looked at him and said, you can't go in like that. They gave him a wraparound. He wrapped around a little skirt around him. Now, that doesn't mean that a person is going in there to worship any more than was Naaman to go into the temple of Remen. Or compare that maybe, for instance, to a Christian who is a secret service officer and he must follow the president into 
a place where he might go worship. These people were carrying out secular duties. But you see, Naaman was so convinced that he should worship only the God of heaven that he said, you know, when I go in there and he has to hold on to my hand when he bows down and I have to bow down with him to hold him up, he said, forgive my servant for bowing. He didn't want to even leave the appearance that he was worshiping the God of women. Question number three. Why is Jesus standing in Acts 7, verses 55 and 56, but sitting in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? Let me read those two passages for you. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, that is Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's my answer. There's a lot of speculation here. This is one of those where you get to say, I don't know. I will tell you there's some things that you possibly can say are reasonable, but at the same time you have to come back and say, the Bible does not say, and if it does not say, I can't say for certain. The posture of Jesus when returning to heaven was to sit at the right hand of God. And I can produce at least 16 different references that say that. I'm just going to take three of them, two in the book of Hebrews and one in Luke, to make the point, and then we'll look at a passage from the Old Testament. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, "...who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of a power, when He had purged our sins..." sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Think with me for just a moment about what that signified. When he had purged sins, when Jesus completed his work, he sat down. You know, you don't sit down until the job is done. I've seen bosses come around and they see some of their employees saying, now what are you doing sitting down? Your job's not done. you still got work to do. Jesus said on the cross, when he gave up the ghost, it is finished. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He didn't say Jesus is up and down. He said he's seated. That's his position. Luke 22, verse 69, Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. So you recognize that the main emphasis, and in fact, I'll tell you, go ahead and search if you want to, there's only one indication of Jesus standing, and that's in Acts 7, 55 and 56. 
Psalm 110, looking forward to Jesus coming, he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Sit until. The last enemy that's going to be slain is death. So it would appear that after Jesus had purged our sins, that he sat down and he will stay seated until the last enemy that has been slain is death. So then that brings up the idea, why would the Lord be standing? Well, first of all, it's possible that Jesus rose from his seated position to welcome Stephen. Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, he saw the heavens open. He is about to die. They're stoning him. It's possible that Jesus stood to receive him. I don't know if that's the case, but that's a possibility. Number two, it is possible that Jesus rose from his seat to judge those who were murdering Stephen. That does have a biblical connection. Psalm 109 and verse 31 says, For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. In other words, Jesus is standing now to pronounce judgment on those who are killing Stephen. He certainly was the first Christian martyr. And then it's possible that Jesus is standing to confess Stephen as one of the faithful. You know, Jesus said, Whoever denies him before men, he will deny him before the Father. Whoever confesses him before men, he will confess before the Father. And in saying this, now we look at Luke 12, verse 8. And I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him will the Son of Man confess before the angels of God. Here's a man dying down here. Stephen looks up and he sees the Son of God standing. Is he standing because he is confessing his name? I don't know the answer. Those are some of the possibilities. But I can tell you that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God now and waiting the consummation of the kingdom when God finally brings all of this to pass. Reading the Bible produces questions, sometimes a lot of questions. These questions sometimes are very interesting, and, you know, the questions that can be answered, we ought to really look for them, look for those answers. Others that cannot, we ought not fret over them. Um... Where did Cain get his wife? You know, all of those questions. What was the curse of Ham? You know, there's some of those things that you and I may want to know the answer to, but we may not know the answer to. But I can tell you what is important. It's when we focus on questions that ask, what do I need to do to please God? And I want to finish with Acts chapter 9. You'll remember the Apostle Paul, also called Saul, He's on his way to Damascus. He's wanting to persecute Christians. There's a light shone down from heaven. Paul's been struck to the ground with blindness. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord. And Paul really is penitent and humble. Acts 9 verse 6 says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. See, God didn't tell Paul right there on the road to Damascus what he needed to do. A lot of people say that's where salvation occurred. No. How do I know it didn't occur there? Because you go into the city, you'll be told what you must do. When he gets to the city, Ananias comes and tells him in Acts 22, verse 16, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. For those of you here tonight who are like Paul, you want to know, Lord, what do I need to do? Well, here's what you need to do. You need to believe in His Son, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized. That's what everybody in the New Testament had to do in order to become a child of God and to please Him. If you're a child of God and you need to come back home, the Bible teaches us to repent and to pray and that God will willingly forgive us of those sins. We're going to sing, I bring my sins to thee. If you're subject to the invitation, please come as together we stand and sing.